Uh, what do we make this panel about being on time for things? Uh, uh, good morning. I'm Mark Evanier. Uh, this is called That 70s Panel. For those of you who don't aren't aware, we used to do a thing called the Golden Age Panel, people from the 40s. And then they were all dead. And then we did it, we, it turned into the Golden Silver Age Panel. And we can't stop staff that anymore. We don't have enough people to staff that. So we make now the 70s panel, talking about the 70s, because that was, a, and that was an important era of change in the industry. That was an era when, when a lot of new people got in the field, a lot of old people were starting to edge out the door, and uh, all of us had, and we will talk about this, the great thrill of working with people whose comics we admired as readers first. You know, everybody here has, has that story about, oh, I'm suddenly working with that guy whose work I, I read when I was younger. I'm suddenly bonding with, I don't know, when we, when, there was a time when we came to this convention, and you, okay, I haven't even introduced you yet. You're not late because I haven't introduced you yet. All right. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, when you came to this convention, once upon a time, you got to meet Jack Kirby or Will Eisner or Jerry Siegel or people like that. And it was just a very... Uh, Exciting time, and the future generations will have the thrill of talking about how they got to work with people whose comics they read. But the people whose comics they read didn't invent the industry. We were the ones who got to work with the people who invented the industry. Um, and so we've got some time to talk about this. And let me just tell you, you've already got your sign in place. Okay. Uh, this is my fourth panel. <laughs> and I'll be Lee Mars also at the same time. <laughs> uh, but in the convention, I'm going to have 15 of these on the table. Uh, uh, going down the table, let me introduce each of these people here. This is one of my best friends. Though. I've known this man. How long have I known you? 50 years. More than that. More than 50 We met years. in person at the 1970 New York convention. We were corresponding and talking on the phone for two or three years before that. And this gentleman worked for DC and Marvel and every company probably at some point or another and worked on lots of the big characters. People probably know him best as the creator of Black Lightning, Mr. Tony Isabella. And this lady was someone who, forgive me for saying this, at one point half the men at the conventions were in love with. That's very sweet of you, and, and, uh Because not only was she cute, but she drew the sexiest women and loveliest drawings and things of that sort. And this and it has become a major historian of, of the mistreatment of her gender and the rise of them actually taking their place at the table. This is Trina Robbins, folks. And this is an empty chair, which we hope to see in Arvo Jones. And if we move down the past that. The ghost of Arvo. The Ar yes, Ar Arvo got, a, got an unexpected job on the way here and is currently penciling like crazy to beat a deadline, an 11 a.m. deadline. Um, and here we have a lady who's done some of the most amazing. Um, there's certain people who are known for doing autobiographical work. Comics, or which, which feel autobiographical because you read the comics and you feel like you know the person in it and, and have met them or maybe are the person in it. And she's done some wonderful. This is Lee Mars. Yeah. <laughs> and 
tonight at the award show, if you get there, you will see us present the Bill Finger Award for Excellence in Comic Book Writing to a gentleman who certainly deserves it. Um, he, I first knew Mike's work as a guy who wrote letters to letter pages. We shared a few letter pages back then, and one day he was suddenly writing uh, the comic books, the stories around the letter pages, and I was critiquing them in the letter pages, and he went on to become a regular work writer for, for, a, for a while for DC, and he did a lot of stuff at Marvel, which we'll get to talk about, and then later he became very important in establishing the direct sales market and properties for the direct sales market as both a, a publisher and, a, and a, an agent and a person who understood that industry helped an awful lot of people navigate it. And I'm going to tell you what he's been doing lately. It's very interesting. This is Mr. Mike Friedrich. And I remember a time when people didn't want to work for Warren Publishing except that she was running it over there a lot. Because uh, it was like, you know, it was like, oh no, I'm not working for Jim Warren, I'm working for Wheezy. She'll, she'll take care of us and protect us. And she did some wonderful comments there and then went over to Marvel and did a lot of wonderful things like uh, Power Pack and uh, things like that. Anyway, uh, this is Louise Simonson, folks. And that's Walt. <laughs> He's uh, a terrific artist and writer, and uh, somebody who had the unenviable task of uh, doing Thor for a while and having people say, hey, this is worthy of Thor. <laughs> That's another way to make comics. Um, I'm going to essentially ask each person on the panel to tell us uh, briefly how they got into comics. Um, and we don't have to go deeply into that, but I want, what I'm interested in here is talking about um, the, the way in which you approached being in the industry. Because before we started doing comics, we all heard the horror stories of Siegel and Schuster being mistreated, and, of, uh, and we all got into a field where probably each of us at some point was told by some established professional, you, you don't want to do this, you really don't want to do this. Um, and I, I'm interested in the, in the attitude you had about comics when you got in. Did you want to stay in it? Did you want to get in and get out? Did you want to make a, a lifetime career in it? How did you feel about that? And we'll start with Tony. In July 1963, I bought the greatest comic book ever made, Fantastic Four Annual Number no. 1 by Stanley and Jack Kirby. Uh, I suddenly realized that this was a job people got paid for, and I wanted that job. So I wrote for fanzines, I wrote comic strips for fanzines. I got, to, I got into the business after almost getting trampled by a mounted policeman during a newspaper strike. And went to Marvel and just couldn't, I mean, my boss was Stan Lee. Uh, I was working with, with guys like Frank Giacoy and Mike Esposito. Uh, my attitude was, was, I was incredibly naive. Uh, I worked my butt off for the company. Sometimes I was rewarded for that, sometimes I wasn't. But I still love comics to this day, no matter what else has happened. Comics to me are just a wonderful way to stay, to tell stories, and I'm in it for, for however long a haul I have. All right. I remember one interesting moment when Tony was working for Marvel. Um, he called me up late one night. He used to, he used to like sleep in the offices sometimes. Yeah, and yeah. I work, work around the clock. 
And let's let's quietly notice that Arbel Jones has joined the panel. One of the finest artists in the business. We trust you got caught in the throng of people outside who oh won't let you go. Oh, my God. Awful out there, isn't <laughs> yes. it? And I was just trying to get up here. Good. Anyway. Thank you for making it here. Yeah. Uh, Tony called me late one night, and he was battling a very serious deadline. And at the time, I was writing the Daffy Duck comic books for Gold Key. And he was writing the, ep- the issue of Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, that was going to come out in two months. And that night, I was writing the issue of Daffy Duck that was going to come out in one year in two months. <laughs> because Marvel was very close to the deadlines all the time, and Gold Key would do stuff, you know, for the next century in advance. It was a very different night. We had uh, a lot of talks about <laughs> this distance. Trina, um, tell us how you became a comic book person. Uh, I have read comic books uh, all my kid life. Um, I was, and I was an early reader too. My mother taught me to read at the age of four. She was a school teacher. Um, but at a certain point in high school, I put them away as childish things and turned to science fiction. Just aside from required reading in high school, everything else I read was science fiction. Uh, but I got back into comics in about 1964 or five. I can't remember the exact year. But again, you'd mentioned the Fantastic Four. Suddenly, my friends were telling me, look, comics aren't what they used to be. They're amazing. There's this, this guy who gets all upset and turns green. And, you know, just so. And what I really liked, my favorites of them all were Thor and Doctor Strange, because they were both kind of cosmic. Um, and suddenly I, then, but still, it was superheroes. It was superheroes, and I was not a superhero artist. Then somebody, in 1966, someone showed me a copy of an underground newspaper called the East Village Other. I was living in L.A. at the time. And the East Village Other, it related to me and to my lifestyle. And there were comics, but they weren't superheroes. They were, sometimes you couldn't even understand them, but they were really interesting to look at. Um, And that was when I thought, that's what I want to do. And um, shortly after that, the summer of 1966, I came to New York. Um, one of the first things I did was go to the offices of the East Village Other. I, I was lucky because one of my friends, one of my L.A. friends, was now the managing editor. And I got to know these people, and I did a drawing for them. Um, I went to their offices. Nobody was home. I just shoved it under the door, and they published it. And that was my first published comic. So, you know, here I am. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Jones, we're asking each person to tell us how they got into comics and kind of how they felt about the business, about they were entering, whether they wanted to stay in it or get out of it, or uh, pull a microphone closer to you, if you would. Thank you. Um, I've got so many stories about that, but my one of my favorite stories was uh, when I was maybe 11 years old. Like everybody else, I sent a fan letter to Marvel uh, to my idol Jack Kirby. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, to my idol Jack Kirby, and uh, you know I put the draw I put a drawing in there, and I uh, uh, 
you know, lifted my, my, uh, my address and my phone number and everything as if he was going to call me. And, uh, uh, and then one day my phone rang, and it was Jack Kirby. <laughs> and uh, he told me he got my drawings, and he loved the drawings, and he thought that, you know, if I keep at it, I could have a future in the business. Well, Jack King Kirby just told me I could get in the comics. <laughs> I, hadn't, I didn't have a choice at that point. <laughs> so I went on a mission to know everything there was about it. I picked up all the fanzines and, you know, I got the rocket blast and comic collectors. You know, I, I got everything that came out for the most part. Uh, and then after that, uh, I started meeting people. And uh, conventions were just getting going. I went to Detroit Triple Fanfare, went to old bookstores to pick up old comics I was reading about in the fanzines. And I was working in a fanzine, uh, I was working in a bookstore, used bookstore that had old comics. And I wanted them all, but I couldn't afford them. So I made a deal with the, uh, the bookstore owner to, uh, to do, redo all his signs and calligraphy. And... Uh, with that, I could pick from this big box of comics, five comic books, pull them out, I put them on the top shelf where nobody could reach them. Remember, I'm about 11, maybe 12 years old at the time. This big, tall guy, big, you know, with blonde hair, rock and roll looking guy came in, walked straight to where I put the comics, and started flipping through them. And I said, hey, those comics aren't for sale. And he said, uh, no, you know, uh, this is a bookstore, right? <laughs> and these are books. So I'm buying them. So I had to finagle with him to keep some of the comics I wanted. He wouldn't let me keep Private Life of, uh, of uh, uh, private, pri- I mean, yeah, yeah, private Strong, yeah. Uh, and a couple of others that I really wanted. And so we got to arguing, and then we got to talking about, what do you know about comics? And he says, I'm going to be a comic book uh, uh, artist. And his name was Rich Butler. So we became good friends. So Rich Butler was trying to swipe your comments. Yeah. Well, yeah, he did. I was working to pay for them, and he came in with cash. And cash rules, unfortunately. But uh, Let me interrupt you. Let me ask you a question. Okay? You sent Jack Kirby this letter with drawings in it. Yep. All right? If somebody today came up to you, as an established artist that said, Mr. Jones, I really want to be a comics. You look at my work. And they showed you work of that quality. Mm-hmm. What would you tell them? I, you know, I believe in returning the favor. So. Okay, but I mean the quality of the work. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, even at the quality of the work of an 11-year-old. I'm assuming I you judge. draw better now. <laughs> right? Can you, yeah. can, can you look back at, at that work, your 11-year-old work and not cringe? Or do you oh, I do cringe. It? I do cringe, very much so. But, uh, but it doesn't matter. You know, I, uh, me and Keith Pollard and a couple of other people, we created a comic book workshop in Detroit. And all we do is help you know, either add, you know, disadvantaged kids or adults that want to get into the business. And you know, I've helped shepherd in uh, Mike, uh, uh, Mike Nasser, hmm. uh, uh, Terry Austin. You know, all those guys are from Detroit. You know, I convinced Mike Vosper to get into the business, Jim Starlin. He didn't know if he was going to do it. And I anybody, kept saying, any, anybody yeah. any good? <laughs> Maybe a couple of people, you know. <laughs> and uh, I had built up a pipeline. And, and part of my pipeline was this guy over here, uh, you know, uh, Tony Isabella, who 
was one of the first ones that I knew from, you know, just being in fandom to actually get into the business. And he was, you know, open and, you know, and fun and, you know, approachable. And I just sent everybody to Tony. <laughs> He's also short. Let me, go on to, let me go on to Lee. We'll come back to you. Lee, I honestly do not know the answer to how you got into the business. So please tell us about it. Um, as a kid, I uh, read a lot of comics. Uh, I was fascinated by Joe Kubert. And so I had all the war comics and, you know, Sergeant Fury and all this kind of stuff. Rock. Sorry. Um, and uh, my mother eventually thought that I was going to become a commando. And so she forbade me to buy comics. So my grandmother, uh, who was always on my side, bought me comics. And, uh, and I just worshipped Joe Kubert. Uh, and so in, um, while I was in college, I happened to meet and eventually become the roommate of Tex Blaisdell's daughter. And so we would, this was in Washington, D.C., we would go up for long weekends in New York. And he, at the time, was doing backgrounds for just about every known comic strip. Um, Julia Jones, um, Little Orphan Annie, Prince Valiant. It was enormous. And uh, so he needed help. Uh, and so I began being an assistant uh, part-time. And uh, so... He was of the generation who didn't believe girls could draw. So it was as though a, a giraffe had come in the door and could draw. He, he, was, he kept kind of staring at me and saying, what is this? But he needed help. So, um, so for years I did this. Um, he introduced me to Joe Orlando, his best friend, who at the time uh, wanted to do a kind of mad magazine for DC. And so he, uh, he was open to having even girls draw. Uh, but uh, I got an offer for a full-time job for CBS News in Washington, DC, so I became a graphic artist for that. Um, later on, when my life collapsed and I moved to California, um, I tried again to get some work in New York. And by this time, um, Tex was editing House of Mystery and Tales of Ghost Castle, kind of B or C movie level work. Um, so I began doing stories and drawings for that. And eventually, uh, Joe Orlando did get his way and began producing Plop. And so how I got into comics was through Joe Orlando. But the, the best part of this was one day in the D.C. offices, I saw this, what looked like, a young man looking out the window. And uh, so he, he introduced himself, and it was Joe Kubert. 
And uh, it turned out he had started working when he was 15, 16 12. in the business. It was, you know, it was, he was 12. <laughs> so by this time, he was only like in his 30s. Um, it was amazing. So uh, my wish came true. And, but uh, I never thought that I would do this as a career because... The both strip artist and the comic book artist had terrible deadlines, didn't own anything, and got paid zilch for what they did. So when Underground Comics came along, I shifted over. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing this, which I did. 
five years later, but that's another story. <laughs> Scientists or university professors. 
So nobody had any idea what freelance was about or how to make a career in art. So I didn't have a specific idea. I just went to art school because I, well, basically I failed my physical for Vietnam. I was drafted for Vietnam. I failed my physical, not the worst day of my life. Is that the bone spurs? Yeah. Jobs. But we really wanted to do comics. 
and so we, we stayed in business. I also thought at the time that, well, you know, maybe in five years, I'll learn to like and learn from comic books. As an artist, I'll have to do something else. And I haven't gotten to that point yet where I feel I haven't learned anything because I'm still working on that. But that's really how it worked out. It worked out. And then industry got healthier again for a while, and I still have a job. Good for me. Thank you. The uh, second person I ever met who did comic books, who was involved in comic books, was Jerry Siegel. The third one was Bob Kane, the fourth was Jack Kirby. And I, I used to say, I'll tell people, yes, I met, met the co-creator of Superman, the co-creator of Batman, the co-creator of everything else. <laughs> and some people get mad at me saying, well, what about C.C. Beck? And I said, no, you're not getting the joke. Anyway, the first guy I ever met who did comic books was a man named Ken Landau, who did a lot of stuff for publishers in the 50s. He was not as well-known, obviously, as either gentleman. But all four of those gentlemen discouraged me from doing comics. Uh, you can kind of understand why Jerry Siegel would be kind of down on doing comics in 1968, because he was not getting enough work. He was, at, he was working at the post office to support his family. And of course, Jerry was a very proud man, and he would have to tell everybody he created Superman. And at the post office, he would tell that to somebody, and they'd go, what are you doing here? And he shouldn't have been there. Uh, and Bob Kane, Bob Kane looked at my work and told me to get out of the business, forget about it, I had no talent for writing or drawing anything like that. And I thought to myself, you know, this would have bothered me if it was Sheldon Moldoff telling it to me. But, but Bob Kane, I'm not going to listen to him. Uh, and Jack told me, you know, that he wasn't happy in comics. And I thought, well, if Jack Kirby doesn't have that happy in comics, what's the chance for me? So I never wanted to make it my whole career, and I never have. Um, did any of you get discouraging advice from people who had been in the business before you? Anybody here? Um, <clears throat> I did not get discouraging advice from people. I call them the old guys, although now I'm an old guy, too, and they're all dead. <laughs> but um, in 77, I went to my first... Uh, San Diego Comic Con, and I met everyone. Robert Heinlein was there, Cece, you mentioned Cece Beck. We became very good friends and corresponded up until he died. Uh, what a great guy, I loved that man. Um, Jack Kirby, I had actually even met Jack Kirby earlier at a New York convention. And all the old guys were really nice to me, but the discouraging advice I got was in the, you know, from the, the 80s, and in the 90s, when I was trying to actually maybe sell something to mainstream comics and get paid decently, it's different from the underground, and that was all those guys saying, girls don't read comics. And to be completely honest, what I want now is apologies from every one of them. <laughs> shove you into the romance comic department. No. Right. That would have been nice. I would have loved right, reading romance I guess comics. by that point they were kind of... They were, yeah, they, 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 all, they were almost all gone. I mean, anything, anything at all that had been aimed at a female audience had long been shoved under the bus in favor of superheroes. Well, was it... I mean, my thought was um, those guys didn't know how to sell comics to anything but a certain adolescent boy. Well, they wanted to sell market. comics to themselves, basically. I mean, they were doing the comics boys loved because those were the comics they loved. 
And at that point, anything by women was considered trivial and unimportant. Okay. It was the same. Get a microphone. It was the same for me in a way. Um, I was, when I first went to Marvel in D.C., I tried to pitch, you know, comics with black superheroes for the most part. And, uh, that would never sell. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I got. Tony, tell them what black superheroes Especially if they'll never make a movie. <laughs> you know, you probably just have the authentic voice that someone like me has. <laughs> okay, here's, here's my kind of rule of, of life in comics. People are stupid, and if you don't think you are, that's the proof. <laughs> I've gotten very negative in my old age. <laughs> you know, I had uh, uh, some encounters with, with, with uh, I guess, the first real positive, you know, idea of, of doing a superhero, a black superhero, was with Tony. Um, you know, we fought a little bit about you know, the characters and things like that. But for the most part, he was very open. Everybody else was kind of like, eh, we got the Black Panther, and that book is failing. Uh, the Falcon's not strong enough. Um, and there was no Storm or, you know, or anybody else. You know, Luke Cage was barely making it. And uh, they weren't interested, you know, so... Well, I, I, will, I, will just, I want to interject this because I want to make sure I, I get it on this tape here. You cannot know what it's like to create a character that means so much to people until, as has happened to me several times with Black Lightning, people will come up to me with tears in their eyes, hugging, hugging me because it's the first time they saw themselves in a comic book. Um, and when I hear that, that, that has set the course for the rest of my career. If we have comic book readers, they should see themselves reflected in our comic book. Doesn't matter gender, uh, race, political affiliation, Christian, atheist, you know, if they're reading our comics, they should be able to find themselves in our comics in a respectful manner. any pressure in any way to draw like certain people not be not draw like yourself Did the, was there pressure to you to draw like Jack Kirby or John Buscema or Neil Adams or anyone? I personally was discouraged from drawing like Jack Kirby who I really wanted to draw like in fact I was jealous of you when you started working with Jack <laughs> okay. but uh, uh, you know for me uh, yeah, I was pretty much you know, I was discouraged from drawing like Jack, although they wanted me to draw in the house style, you know, sort of. That's what I was nudged at. The house style then, John Buscema? Uh, little, John little Jack Kirby, little John Ramita. And, uh, well, uh, is this what you were told by your editors? The drawing of the Kirby or Buscema style? Is well, that that's what was... Um, or was it more understood? You were rewarded for... Good yeah, I, well, I, you know, the closer I got, the more work I got. Did you have anybody nudging you to draw more like someone else? No, I never had any fear by drawing now, so nobody bothered with trying. I never had any pressure to try and draw like anyone else in my stuff. But when, when you were when you were drawing Thor, or when you did like, like, like the Rampaging Hulk mm -hmm. comic, did you feel put pressure on yourself to draw like someone in particular? 
No, I just, you know, uh, sort of like a rampage in hell. I did the layouts I thought it was a black and white comic the magazine came out in the mid-70s. Alfredo Alcala did the finishes, so it doesn't look much like me, although the storytelling is mine. Mostly I was trying to tell stories, and at the time, I was trying to learn to tell stories faster. I felt like when I was doing Math Hunter for DC a few years earlier, I was doing about a page a week, which was just enough to keep food on the table, and if I did some other stuff along with it. So in the Hulk, I worked try to work fast. I was trying to draw, I mean, I was hugely inspired by Jack Kirby. If I never looked at Jack's work again, it's not I internalized what he did so much, but I just, I had my feet 14 feet apart when I was crying, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But I really, and, and to me at that time, if I were drawing characters, I thought they should look like the way they had looked when I began reading their comics, more or less. So the Hulk was Jack Kirby. Iron Man was always Gene Collins, Iron Man for me. So I didn't, I didn't know much Iron Man. But I just tried to capture some of that flavor, but it was still my own drawing. And I was never, never asked by an editor, or even really pressured, to try to draw him a house style. There were some, um, got a lot of guys who did, that was fine. But I was able to get work without feeling that at the time, and I it never, it was never an issue for me really. And my stuff was just so weird. I didn't have a lot of clones either, it was just, uh, you know, I didn't know I could figure out what I was doing. I, I still had to play, I still had to play. I'm still not sure what you do for a living. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mike, um, when you were still writing stories for Julia Schwartz, did you feel like you, you had to write a good story or a good Julia Schwartz story? I had to write a good Julia Schwartz story. <laughs> a strange Schwartz story. It, it, it didn't. It didn't. It was never articulated in that fashion. Um, but he would. He really didn't like the stuff that um, didn't conform to how he wanted it done. Uh, he was a very strong, hands-on editor which is ultimately why I stopped working for him. Uh, was, uh, I remember very, very clearly after working with him for three or four years, and he bitterly complained that um, my work read too much like a Marvel comic. <laughs> and and, and, um, and I puzzled over that for a little bit, and. Roy Thomas was constantly telling me, whenever you want work, come on over. We have work for you. And so I remember giving it a try and discovering that I could write twice as many Marvel comics as I could write Julie Schwartz comics and get paid far more money for it. So it, it was, um, yeah, it was a no-brainer. I remember one of your assignments, for, I guess it was for Julie, was an issue of The Spectre. Yes. Neil Adams would have made it. It was actually the first story of mine not that appeared in print. So, really? So the first story that appears in print is a Neil Adams story. It's all, it was all downhill after that. <laughs> well, I remember it didn't, that script, I haven't looked at it in many years, but I remember at the time thinking, this doesn't read like a, a Julia Schwartz comic or a DC comic. I, I was, that, was, that was a compliment at the time. Well, um, uh, I, it's been so long, I don't remember how that one developed. It was certainly developed in conversation. Uh, uh, I think at that point, he was, he was more concerned about encouraging me to come work, to work. He needed the volume of work. Um, so it was only maybe a year or two later 
I started getting criticized for doing things too much my own way. And were people discouraging you from having much of a career comic saying, you know? You know, I never heard that. Um, it's it's kind of like what Walt was saying. You, you, you were thinking, though, the business did, might not be around for a while. So. Um, I remember you telling me that once. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I catch we, we were at Harlan Ellison's house when they told okay. me that. We were All sitting right. there. We were at Harlan's house one time. Uh, this is an aside. Um, and Mike and I sit in one room talking. Harlan is um, in his office writing in the nude. Yeah. And he suddenly screamed, screamed, he yelled, I have just written the greatest fucking sentence in the history of the English language. <laughs> and he started running around his house naked, just like taking a victory lap. And he ran around on the street and just, you know, did a whole dance. And Mike and I were looking at each other going, that must be some sentence. <laughs> and we went into his office and looked at the latest sentence on the typewriter and went, to get back to the original question. <laughs> now that I have like, an ugly vision all your heads. <laughs> it, it was more like what Bob was saying was there was a general sense that the field was in collapse, but we were comic fans, so what, why would we not want to do something we loved? So we did it. Uh, I don't think I had a sense of, of the future in comics very often. So it was more like, do I have a script this month? Can I pay the rent this month? Um, well, it was very, very short-term thing. Was there a special... Uh, I'll get to leave a minute. Was there a special thrill to you or, or good feeling about doing... I'm doing Batman as opposed to something yeah. else or doing something that was going to be drawn by some artist whose work you read previously. Yeah. Uh, and for me, that was Kill King. Um, that uh, being able to do a story of Kill King, which I, I worked with him at both DC and at Marvel, maybe a half dozen times. And if I knew he was drawing it, um, I just had his pictures in my head, and I could write his panels. Um, and uh, it, it just came so easily to be able to do that. Um, I, I, I probably had three or four actual conversations with him. I never really knew him very well, but um, I, I really enjoyed collaborating with him an awful lot. Yeah, but, but the three or four conversations were like three hours. Yes, yes. I'd like us to talk about the business change that went on in the 70s. Um, about the creator-owned efforts and how the business model changed from uh, corner newsstand to direct sales. Okay. Why don't you start talking about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I lived through it, but I'm not quite sure. Um, uh, let, me, let me start you off this way. Yeah. Our friend Bob Beerbaum. Bob here has this long narrative of how the, he sees the direct market as an extension of underground comics. Yes. And I'm not so sure that he, he's making isn't making some great leaps of. of I disagree of, of, immediately. Okay. Yeah. Um, but there was a thing. I mean, I mean, in the early '70s, like I, Jack Kirby and I would go to what they then called head shops, mm -hmm. and. 
I remember one where they, they threw Jack out because he had a cigar. There was incense and popcorn, and Jack had a cigar. Uh, and Jack looked at underground comics. And while obviously a lot of them were not speaking to him generationally, he really envied the freedom and the copyrights, which in many cases was all the guys got out of doing underground yes. comics. There was not a lot of cash in them unless you were you know, Robert Crumb and maybe Gilbert Sheldon. <laughs> Um, but he kept saying that's the future of comics is guys like this are going to do the next major comics and things like that and then, you know, he says underground will not be underground uh, and I'm not so sure that was a completely accurate production as maybe they just the two arenas bled together so much well, but, but you, were, you owned your own copyrights yes and you owned, so, so you were doing work that you did not only did you own it but you knew that nobody else was going to do the next issue Right, right. Those of us who work for DC and Marvel, you know, never knew, never knew. what was going to happen in the next issue when they did it, when they suddenly stuck a fill-in on us, on our characters, yeah. right, right. including characters we had originated. Yeah. So you had that freedom, and I must, and I'm, and I'll explain this too, and did you enjoy the fact that you had utter, complete control of those characters and books you were doing? Well, of course we did. I mean, we could say what we wanted. You know, I mean, you know, you had the comics code, you guys. And you really couldn't, there were some things you just couldn't talk about. I mean, the women cartoonists, you know, starting with 1972 with women's comics, and we talked about abortion. You know, you sure couldn't say that under the comics code. And um, the, the things we talked about were, well, to start with, the things that we talked about were what we related to, not what you guys related to. Give us, give us an example of a sort of, okay, of well, a, story, a story that you did that was personal to you. She was the first comic that I did for um, for women's comics, uh, called Sandy Comes Out, which was about my ex roommate and friend Sandy Crumb becoming a lesbian. You know, this was something we could talk about and we could relate to. I could never do that in in a, in mainstream comics. Um, <clears throat> this is where Mike comes in again. Um, he getting thinking that he should do things his way. Um, came out with Star Reach, which was a ground level at the time comic. Um, that was the slogan of the company, and so a lot of mainstream artists got to do their freedom stories uh, in Mike's comic. Right. So it was kind of like the best of both worlds. They owned it and uh, and he paid pretty well. But you know, um, I found a problem with that. You know, and I, I'm not denigrating mainstream guys, really, but it was just a fact. An awful lot of them seemed to feel that what underground meant was that they could draw naked girls. <laughs> and, and, that, and that was definitely true at Star Reach initially. Yes. That, that, and, and it was one reason why um, I started out uh, hiring Marvel artists and DC artists to do the leads and the strips. Uh, but if you follow by you know, five or six issues in, Yes, that's true. But I remember because because of that, I mean, I, that, that was the freedom. 
to be at this site. This is what gave me the, made me power hungry. Um, he went away for on vacation, and I got to be an editor for a month, the editor-in-chief. And I so loved it. But I found in the back of a drawer an Archie Goodman script that he had edited. It was, it was somebody else, written by someone else. Archie had changed the time frame, names of characters. He had rewritten the whole thing. And it was so much better when Archie was done with it. So I did this to a couple of people, and then I realized I'm like, this is wrong, 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 and I decided to let people tell their own stories, and if I didn't like the kind of stories I tell, told, I just wouldn't hire them. So I was really hiring people. I was pleasing myself when I, when I bought stories. I bought stories that I liked, and I bought, I got, bought art generally that I liked. Well, that's what I used to tell people. People ask me, what's the difference between a good editor and a bad editor? And I would say, and this is by no means an exhaustive <coughs> guideline, but if you go up to a good editor at a convention and say, hey, that new issue of that book you edited was great, the good editor will say to you, and this is Archie Goodwin, what Archie Goodwin would say is, yeah, didn't the writer do a great job? I, I yeah. really love it when he, he yeah. you know, comes with that. And the artist, God, I was so pleased when I got those pages, I just felt they were wonderful. And the bad editor will say to you, God, I had to drag that script out of him and rewrite half of it and make him do it over three times. And the artist, God, I had to sit on him and make him, you know. And that would be a guideline even when the opposite was true. When, when Archie rewrote an entire script, he would take no credit for it. And there is a code to that, too, which is I told an Archie writer about this script that I had found and what a wonderful job he's done. And how I thought it had just improved. It was really inspirational. You know, to show what you could do as an editor. Um, he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't do that anymore. You know? <laughs> I said, he said, you know, that, that was, that was I, you know, whatever. So he was, he was, he had the same, I, I guess we went through the same phase and then the same realization that I did, which is to hire people who do great work and let them do it. Well, Archie was the editor uh, of Groove for a while, one of the 108 editors who has had over the years. And he made a point of not reading the scripts until they went to issues before, until after they went to press. Because he trusted you completely. Well, they also figured these guys have to take responsibility for their own work and not figure I'll save them. I mean, <laughs> whatever. You know, so they would do a. We actually had in our contract that they couldn't change anything, but he would, you know, give it to somebody and say, you know, make sure there's no spelling mistakes or right. or things like that. Sure. And and he would then proceed for that. And he. I don't think in this business there's ever been an editor who was more respected than Archie. Oh, you are. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'm he was, he was, anybody want to disagree with this? Never. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, uh, and I heard Archie's story on that. Archie knew so much about comics. He was a brilliant editor and a brilliant writer and a phenomenal cartoonist himself. In a human way, not in a straight comic book way. But he, we got to write a story to the life of the 70s. We wrote a story once and in it, there was a panel on a page we described where a character finds, they're in a shed, they're in a shack somewhere in Mexico, they find some coins, the coins, there's a ruble among the coins. This is a significant part of the turn of the story. When we got there, back to the artist and painted beautiful, beautiful work. Again, we're doing what's called Marvel style. You have a complete page of art, you write the script in the art. And so we got the art back, it was beautiful, there wasn't a coin to be seen anywhere on the page, let alone a ruble. But there was a panel of the guy in the, in the, in the shed, and so there's a word on this. Wow, look at that. A bunch of coins. And what's this? A 
I would go there. Um, actually, you know, somebody asked me, you know, what did I think of Chick Stone's work on my work, you know, on Iron Man. And, uh, you know, I, I always liked Chicks on Jack Kirby, so I was excited to have him on. But I was disappointed to see how we how we I'll tell you why that was. When Chick Stone ate Jack Kirby, it was on the 12 by 18 original art size. And when you were, he was, he was on the 10 by 15. And Chick, I got to interview Chick just before he passed away. And he, first of all, did not like inking other artists at all. It was something he did only because he couldn't get pencil work. And, and he would rather take a lower, he would rather make less money and pencil ink his own work than make more money and ink other people. Wow. And he frequently did that because they would say to him, uh, you know, oh, ink these stories for us, and then we'll give you some penciling work. And then they wouldn't give him the penciling. Uh -huh. He felt cheated then. But also, um, the size of original art, he just did not like it. And so when he was inking your work, he was, you know, he, he, he would have gotten better inking if you were back in the 12 by 18 right. size. Oh, man, that's enlightening. Yeah. I always well, wonder. What, you know, <laughs> well, I always jelly. <laughs> anyway, I want to segue back to what mm -hmm. Lee brought up about the direct sales market and the, yeah. when the distribution changed because we all lived through this change. Mm -hmm. And let's talk a little about how it affected our work a bit. Mm -hmm. now, now, Walt did a strip feature with Archie called Manhunter, which some of you may remember, which I recall not getting it to do until the direct sales market reports were printing it. Am I misremembering this? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure. That's, that's the time there was no internet, there was no feedback that way. It was stale. You know, we got some letters. That, I mean, it was, it, what it was was it was well thought of professionally. I'm not sure what it was thought of in terms of the fan, the fan base such as it was at the time. But it won several awards, several professional awards right then. I started that strip and I did the business about six months. So it was really new for me. And I learned a lot of it about from Archie. And at the time I started it, almost none of the editors in comics knew who I was. A couple of guys I worked with, including Archie. And when that strip was over, and we won a bunch of awards, Shazam awards, about a year, a little over a year later, all the editors knew who I was. And I didn't have to go searching for work. I was able to get work because I wasn't So it really made my career in the beginning of my life. And I was just incredibly lucky to be able to work with Archie. And we also have to work very closely together in a way I can't really describe. There was a hate for synergy, so overused. But there was a quality about the two of us working together. Both of us kind of thought the other man there, well, we could leave comics now. It's not anything better than this. And I think in some ways that was true. It was great. Well, I'm, I'm offering a thesis here that the book was a little ahead of its time. The strip was ahead of its time a bit. Because it, yeah, when it, was, it didn't when, feel like it at the time, but maybe so. I, a lot of people didn't really discover it until there was a reprint collection of the whole yes. book, which was, I believe, a direct sales market book by that point. Probably was a, there was a Baxter book. Well, there, was a, there were two things. There was a black and white that Roger Slifer reprinted. There's a black and white, a little oversized, bigger than the regular comics. That sold maybe 10,000 copies back then. And then in 83, there was a Baxter book reprinted as Retard that came out. So more people saw it over time, but yeah, I'm not I'm not really aware of how it kind of span influence, but it's well thought of, both professionally as far as I can tell, largely by families as well. But it, we just thought we were in comics, we weren't really thinking about breaking mm -hmm. new ground in the business or anything like that. No, but I mean, the, the you, you always have a sense of who your audience is, and I think once the direct sales market came along, a lot of us presumed we were writing for a little older audience than we had thought before, and 
that we were now more, even more inclined than before to be writing for the same audience every month, the steady followings. When I got into comics, for those who always uh, debate when the Silver Age officially ended, people have arguments about this, it ended the day I got in. <laughs> when I got into comics, it was, like, it was like when the Renaissance ended and they went, well, we don't have to do good paintings anymore. Uh, the Silver Age is over, Ebony is in, Standards are much lower now, so just put anything. But but the the uh, when I got in, there was still that feeling that there was a large churn in the readership, and that that the you know yeah. the, the two hundred and fifty thousand people who bought this issue, only half of them or a third of them may have bought last issue. And once the direct sales market was there, we were conscious that people were ordering comments at their books neighborhood bookstore, and that they were ordering more than ever based on the creative teams. That you know that, that you know, because when the solicitations came out, it said you know Walt Simonson did this book. They'd get the Walt Simonson orders. And the, you know, people with store owners would say, "Oh, I've got this many Walt Simonson fans. I better order X number of copies." Um, Tony, do you recall well, any any change at that time? Well, um, I think I may be the only person on this panel who actually owned and ran a comic book store uh, for like 12, 13 years, and. What I found was that the audience was a lot bigger than, you know, you know, yes, there were people who wanted John Byrne X-Men or, or, or Walt Thor or Teen Titans, but we sold as many copies of Harvey Picard's American Splendor than we did of, of X-Men. Mm-hmm. Um, was that because you were in Cleveland? Partially because we were in Cleveland, but we'd have out-of-towners coming to the store and, and they would go to our underground comics uh, rack. They would, uh, ri- we sold Richie Rich, we sold like 30 copies of every Richie Rich title, of which there were a million. Uh, but the biggest customers for Richie Rich comics were Malay's Black Women. Which, I finally asked them why, because I was curious, because it's like if there's a whiter character in comics than Richie Rich. And they said, well, we get the money jokes, they're funny, we know they're exaggerated, Richie doesn't care about the money, he cares about his family and friends, and that speaks to us. Uh, so there was always just a really wide range of people who would come in and buy different comics, and I would ask them, and, and so while the direct, you know, Marcus certainly made stars of people like Frank Miller and John Byrne and Chris Claremont, um, there was a, a much wider audience there that, over time, the mainstream publishers just forgot about. They they focused just on the superheroes. Uh, Tony, I think that you are an exception when it comes to comic book stores because uh, most of the comic book stores, uh, the the people who ran the stores were carrying the comics that they liked and that they had liked ever since they were adolescents and those were superhero comics. I loved all kinds of comics. No, you're, I just said you were an exception, so there you go. Tony's an um, exception to everything. <laughs> because that's, it was the direct sales market that killed anything for girls. Um, <clears throat> the last editorial for women's comics, which was our very last issue, was exactly about that. How how you would go into the store and look for women's comics, and they would say, oh, we sold out. But it turned out that all they had 
order were two issues, sold them out, did not reorder, and they, then you would ask them, well, why don't you reorder? And they would say, well, girls don't read comics. And uh, the editor who had written the editorial said, well, you idiots, she actually used a stronger term than that. Why do you think they sold out in the first place? Oh, we, we um, I mean, the comics like American Splendor and Elfquest and, and, and things like that did so well in my store because, you know, people would come in and buy every issue of American Splendor we'd have. They'd buy every issue of the various underground comics we care. And we could, whereas even a book like X-Men would have its regular monthly shelf life, I could sell American Splendor issues for years at a time. And with many of the undergrounds, I could sell for years at a time. I was constantly reordering that stuff. Like I said, you're an exception. Thank you. Uh, we have about three minutes left here, and it's very important that I finish this panel on time because I don't want the moderator of the next panel to get pissed at me, mm. even though it's me. Uh, I want to quickly go down the aisle, the rows here, and I want each person to tell us, and then maybe one sentence why, the work you're proudest of you did between the year 1970 and 1980. A body of work or an individual issue, just one thing that you did in the 70s that you are proud when people come up to you and ask you to sign it because you really liked it. Walt, we'll start at your end. Uh, clear for me, clear for me, I want to all the best work you can be clear for Louise? Oh gosh, I guess just working at Warren and learning how to be an editor and hiring some really good people. I made a lot of nice friends working there. Okay. I uh, creating the Star Reach comics um, and getting myself, myself into the business side of the field, which I enjoyed for decades. Thank you. Good. Lee? Um, it's, it's the work that I'm most well known for the further fattening adventures of Pudge Coleman. <laughs> I've got my old copies. Is Pudge still in print right now? No, it is as a complete book. Okay, go out and buy that complete book if you haven't seen it. It's, it's, totally worth it. it's a perfect example of a comic that could not have been done by a team or a committee or, or an, an editor who would insert his or her views to it. It is, it is a pure creation of one mind. And a, and a kind of a work funny one at that. that. Anyway. And it's on sale downstairs <laughs> at Crystal Comics. Well, you know, it really boils down to it wasn't my best comic ever, but uh, I was very proud of the day me and uh, Tony uh, put out uh, Misty Night. You know, first. Well, for me, it has to be 1970, producing the very, very first all-woman comic book ever, and that was in 1988. Black Lightning, because he was, you know, DC's, and still is DC's most iconic black hero, and, but I have to add, I've written him, every 20 years, they ask me to write him. And I recently did a series called Black Lightning, Cold Dead Hands, which I think is my best work ever. Because uh, every time I've heard the character, I've tried to top my previous efforts with them. 